Um, I've Ben and I have owned a lot of different businesses together, and there's never been a time where one person could just take away our business. And that's the case for cannabis operators that if you're if your local or state municipalities don't renew your license, you don't have a business. The millions of dollars you put into it all the time is just gone. So you you live in this like kind of state of fear. And if you see a new rule set come out or a letter that's kind of threatening, which was the kind of case from our local government, you go into like almost a panic mode, right? And mm. if there's a threat to your license, that's a threat to your livelihood, all your employees. Um, and so, you know, kind of getting to realize that they just needed to take a different track there. Welcome to the Diamond Miners Podcast, a podcast for cannabis operators by cannabis operators. My name's Benjamin Ballinger, and I'm on a mission to explore what makes great cannabis companies great. I talk with real operators across the U.S. and beyond who are making moves in their markets to find out how they're creating successful organizations that can withstand the test of time in this volatile world that we all know as the cannabis industry. What's up, everyone? This is your host, Benjamin Ballinger, and welcome to episode number eight of the Diamond Miners podcast. In today's episode, I had a chance to chat with Nate Russell and Ben Richards from Custom Pack Co., Road Trip, and The Lab out of Kalkaska, Michigan. These two guys have done a great job building multiple companies, one as a cannabis-adjacent packaging company and another as a cannabis processing facility that's now one of the largest pre-roll producers in the state, both for their own brand and for many others. What's most impressive to me, though, is the work that they've done fighting the proposed regulatory changes on behalf of the entire cannabis industry in Michigan. We talked about what motivated them to be a leading voice in this reform effort and why it's important that more operators find the confidence to participate in these types of conversations in their own markets. Now, before we get into today's episode, I just want to remind all of you to please subscribe to the podcast and to check out our website at diamondminers.co for free articles and downloadable tools designed to help you grow your cannabis company. All right, enough blabbing from me. Let's get into it. Nate and Ben, how are you guys doing? Doing well, Ben. Doing well, Ben. Ben, Ben. Ben. Many Bens. A couple of, couple of Bens and a Nate here. Oh, this should be a band. <laughs> Not a bad name. A couple of Bens and a Nate. Yeah. I'll play bass and dance. Well, you're the, it's like, it's got to be like ZZ Top, right? So the two Bens are the beards, and then you're the dude without the beard. That's, you got to be the singer. Good. Cause I can't grow a beard. <laughs> yeah. I'm, mine's pretty messy as it is right now. You get shaven. Oh, so you guys have been popping up in my LinkedIn a lot lately. Um, seems like you guys are really digging in with Michigan uh, regulations and kind of taking the forefront in many respects on uh, trying to talk some sense into some of these new regs that are coming down the pipeline. And I, I wanted to start with that because I think that anyone that's been in a state where, which is most states where they're either it's a new market or the regulations are still kind of evolving. They've had some, some issues or, you know, kind of frustrations similar to what you guys are going through, even though Michigan is a bit more of a, you know, evolved state market. Right. So why don't we start with that? And maybe you can just give a background on um, kind of what, what your issues have been with the regulations and what you guys are doing right now uh, to try to address that. Yeah, I can take this one. Um, yeah, so, you know, for us, uh, any most cannabis businesses, I think we're, we experienced like 
you know, uh, hardship, I guess, on local, state, and federal levels. You know, um, I'm not lobbying on a federal level yet, but I, I'd like to start making some noise on the 280 front. It's it's such a big burden for us, but um, mostly state and local. Local, you know, I put a lot of our issues into just like small town, like pride, like mm -hmm. literally the personal relationships of like the old president who's no longer on the board is complaining about the new board and stirring up trouble. And so that is just small town stuff. Um, They're bored. But yeah. And I mean, like, you know, we, I, this, I put it to these guys at the village council meeting. And I think it's what's kind of struck a chord with them. We live with like a dagger over our head is what I said as a license holder. Um, I've Ben and I have owned a lot of different businesses together and there's never been a time where one person could just take away our business. And that's the case for cannabis operators that if you're if your local or state municipalities don't renew your license, you don't have a business. The millions of dollars you put into it all the time is just gone. So you you live in this like kind of state of fear. And if you see a new rule set come out or a letter that's kind of threatening, which was the kind of case from our local government, you go into like almost a panic mode. Right. And mm. if there's a threat to your license, that's a threat to your livelihood, all your employees. Um, and so, you know, kind of getting them to realize that they just needed to take a different track there. Um, on you, the guys have enough, level, you guys have enough fear and uncertainty just being business owners in general, having that whole other layer is, yeah, terrible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyone who's been a startup owner, you know, or an entrepreneur knows it's terrifying. Exactly yeah, right. So, um, but yeah, and then on the state level, uh, I think it was a smart way to go about it. They, basically, the CRA put out like 13 pages of new rules. And it was kind of a shock to everyone. Is This is a better system, I guess, than before when they would just say, hey, here's the new rule, deal with it. These yeah. are all proposed rules. They were really fishing to see responses. Um, and so, you know, there were a handful of rules that would really significantly affect our business like either to you know we did have to add a couple different admin staff at minimum like maybe one per rule just to deal with the consequences um and then there was one that was like all pre-rolls need to get tested and we're a pre-roll company uh they need to get tested in their final form and right now it's you test the, the cannabis you roll it and it's good to go um right. and so that one is like would would shatter our, our business model it's um has a lot of difficulties so those are kind of the main things um you know just like uh in many ways it's uh kind of changing the rules after we we already signed up for the game you know is yeah. how it feels right um and i made that point to him that we we probably wouldn't have started this business or gone into business if those rules existed when we started so they're that drastic you would have penciled um, out the financials and you would have seen it impossible to ever make a profit, uh, at least with 280E in place, which I know is another thing that you guys have been very much more aware of than a lot of companies out there. And I want to talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, I think the the real crux is like when you have to bring in help that isn't going to be wrapped under cogs, then it's even worse uh, oh, in an already yep. strained, small, tiny, little slim margins that you got with the pre-rolls in particular. And that's kind of your guys' bread and butter, right? Like you guys have a big pre-roll code production manufacturing operation, right? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we also have our own brand as well, but probably what do you think? 50-50 right now, our own brand and then co-packing. 
Yeah, I'd say about 50-50. Didn't used to be. We got into the space primarily in this B2B model that we, you know, thought would be um, our longstanding thing and then quickly realized that if we could implement what we're good at into our own brand, it's, it's you know, essentially a slam dunk, um, even with the COGS um, conversation. But it's, um, it's quickly taken off as um, a nice thing for our business, for sure. Do you feel like that's actually helped uh, in some ways, like build that authority for you guys so that other people want to work with you more? Or do you think that that's worked against you? You know, I mean, from, uh, I was just saying, from a sales standpoint, I was really worried about it, right? I mean, a lot of the, um, you know, the larger clients that we have were, you know, I was the customer facing person. And so yeah. uh, having this conversation with them of like, oh, you're competing with shelf space. I mean, we've, we've tried to position ourselves in a space that doesn't necessarily compete with some of our largest co-packing clients. Um, and so we've been successful in a lot of the retailers that we work with, even I think most of our co-packing clients aren't in, so we're really mm. not competing. Um, I think some of that is just coincidence, um, but at the end of the day, there's, there's so much market share in this, you know, low to mid cost pre-roll space that, um, you know, you, if you're still providing such a quality service um, to them, it's really hard to, to not coexist. And so I think we pitch our service and our brand as a partnership, right? Like we want to band together with the people that we like together that are going to want to last for a long time together. Yep. Um, and so if Building you kind of take- that micro economy yeah. kind of with other like-minded operators. A hundred percent. I mean, there's enough yeah. meat on the bone for all of us if done correctly. Right. And so, yeah. um, that's kind of the pitch in both directions. So I think it's, it's been sustainable because of that. That's good. I mean, there's that cliche that's been going around on LinkedIn in the cannabis industry, but it's true, right? It's like the people at the bottom are kind of fighting amongst each other, dog eat dog. And then the folks that are kind of rising above have opted to collaborate. And I, I actually think it's even more than that. I think operators now that want to survive they need each other right like um not even definitely with more horizontal integration as time goes on which is you know working with folks like you that have the capacity to do stuff cheaper and more efficiently than other people and the things that you've decided is kind of your core competency but also just having each other's backs uh whether it's fighting for the entire industry with you know, the regulatory agency, making sure that everybody's kind of not going to get thrown under the bus or whether it's helping each other, you know, negotiate uh, shelf space and chops, if it makes sense, things like that, collaborative products. There's a lot of opportunities and avenues to work together. And um, I think from a consumer perspective, like it's exciting when you see, like if you have two favorite brands and they come together and do something like that's, that's a cool thing uh, that brands should be a little bit more open to and stop looking at each other as like, a zero sum game kind of thing. Yeah. I think that's the sign of a mature market, right? At some point when people aren't cutting each other's throats for stupid little transactional business, it's, it seems like things are progressing to this like level of CPG, if you will, that we should be at uh, in cannabis, obviously the reg, the regs and things like that make that a bit more difficult. But mm. um, you know, I think as we progress as a, a business or a sector of business, that kind of behavior should be way more plentiful and yeah. will be the yeah. norm. You're not going to be able to survive if you don't. Yeah. Just, just from, a, I think a big piece that people just missed from the beginning was like, and 
not that I was bright enough to see this ahead of time or in a position to act on it, but you you think do it, being vertically oriented is going to save you the most money, right? Oh, well, I'll buy cannabis for myself. It'll be great. It'll be cheaper than if I bought it on the open market. But people forget if you spread yourself horizontally, the, all the admin systems costs, so like all your software, um, you know, not maybe not the people who do your books, but like the people who run your internal systems, who manage, you need a different manager for processing, different one for cultivation, different one for retail, right? And if you're so lucky, cost, you might even need a director or a VP, depending on how big exactly. you are, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so those are redundant costs, right? And each one yeah. has a different software suite that, that operates it, right? And so people were like, oh, yeah, it's going to be so great. I'll be vertical. It'll be really cheap. To, it'll be really streamlined. Well, you're wrong because you have to have all these redundant systems because you're actually running three different businesses. Yeah. And so they and missed exactly. out on the actual savings is having one admin who controls 20 stores or, or controls a massive processing operation. And that, like, you know, you mentioned running horizontal. The, the secondary thing is when you partner with another person who's specialized, they're definitely going to, we, we think our sweet spot is if we can do it cheaper than you can do it if you chose to do it yourself, even Correct. with our marketing. Even opinion, with your right? market. Yep. And you don't have and a better. choice, right? We can do it cheaper, better, and your team, who's probably a bunch of cultivators, can keep cultivating and not spend time rolling pre-rolls and, and putting stickers on things. And so mm -hmm. like you, everyone benefits because, man, I don't, I don't want to work with a guy who's, you know, hand washing you know, bubble hash and is going to have to charge me for that. I want a guy with six automated systems that are running with one operator and can charge me that, you yeah. know, and, and get that economy of scale and pass it on. And we're both going to win. And, you know, if you look, you looking mass CPG, like one of the most successful products in like the last 10, 20 years was Doritos and Taco Bell with the mm -hmm. their their shells and they did the cinnabon thing like that just yeah. like turned around taco bell new ceo crush it but like you know it, you see it out there and like that's it, it's just been a hit like you put two things together and now it's got become more commonplace but yeah 100 you know, it's, it's everywhere and it's very successful and people kind of miss out on it it's, it's maybe the old trap mindset a little bit you know like you do i trust someone else in my supply chain <laughs> that, unless i'm like, selling you, know, you really are both selling the same thing kind of in the old days you know right well there just wasn't it wasn't uh responsible to collaborate back in the day because you were trying to keep everything under the radar right like you didn't really want people to know that you were even oh. in the business um but i think uh, you know I, I i'll be honest i've been a proponent of vertical integration in emerging markets and i still feel that way in many respects but i have seen and i've always recognized because if you look at any mature market they're not typically vertically integrated um there might be some that i'm not aware of but like the vast majority you know sometimes they'll do they'll they'll vertically integrate to a certain level right like uh, you might have a computer company that decides to make its own processors or you might have an auto uh, maker that decides to start fabricating its own steel or something but they t they all like there is no uh, other industry I can think of where they literally control the entire supply chain from start to finish. And there's a reason for that because it's inefficient. However, the reason why I think it's important in the beginning as a survival mechanism is because when things are so volatile, 
before the laws of macroeconomics start coming in and taking over, right? Like Michigan uh, in 2020-21, when everything just crashed way down. Imagine if you were just a distillate producer, right? And all you did was produce distillate. Like when distillate went down to $800 a liter, um, you know, yeah, maybe you're, maybe you're so efficient that you can still make some money on that. But like people were selling it at a loss because they were just fire selling all their stuff. And there was so many people doing it that it was just almost like it was practically an endless supply. And it, I've, I've heard the same thing in like California and some of the other States that are struggling, uh, through those periods. Right. So I think in certain situations, having an ability to control the cost from start to finish and the price that you get for it, especially if you can take it to retail or at least retail ready can help you float over those initial volatility waves. But I completely agree that as time goes on, horizontal integration makes way more sense and it takes people like you. And I talked to John Lafada over at uh, big oil co a couple episodes back, right? He's got a horizontally integrated, um, manufacturing operation. They just do, you know, extracts and, and products. They don't, you know, they have their own brand, just like you guys, which is a very well-selling brand. One of the top extract brands in the state of California. Um, but they don't have stores. They don't have cultivation. They don't have any of that. Right. And they focus on what they do and they do well, but like you guys are kind of that early adopter that's had to come in and, and make that headspace. And I think that that's why you're at the top now, but like, if you would have, you know, come in as that horizontal operator up front in full, you know, full speed, you might've had a really difficult time at the time. So you guys timed it very well. And I, I want to dig into that in your history. And like, you guys have an interesting background of kind of where you started this company and what it's become now. So I want to hear a little bit more about that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my take on like the vertical versus horizontal. And I think it's kind of a spectrum as, as time goes on, you know, you guys feel the same or are you kind of like just straight, horizontal from the get-go? I kind of, I mean, I, I agree on the emerging market side. I mean, I think being vertical at, at that point in time, getting into something early makes sense. Oftentimes those companies are the most well capitalized too. So you can, you can kind of throw around some cash at the beginning and it makes sense. Uh, yes. But I think as that market matures, that's when you start to see people silo themselves in an efficient way. And again, that's like the sign of the thing starting to mature in my opinion. Um, so I think, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think in certain situations, it does make sense. And again, there are outliers in the vertically integrated space that make it make sense. But oftentimes those people still use, you know, co-packers for specific things in their business. And that's why they succeed vertical is because all those custom one-off projects that, you know, they need to move outside that require this, you know, huge admin costs and stuff, they still kick it to, you know, a third party co-man or, or whatever you want to call it. So I think, you know, for the most part, I agree with what, what you said. It's, it's uh, it is a spectrum. Great points. Yeah. So, so much just scale too. I like try to remind people a lot, a lot of this. I think a lot of operators, when we start, you know, like three years ago, or even when we were just selling packaging, we hear people, uh, well, we have a couple of stores now, but we're, you know, we have our processing license. We're going to turn on a cultivation. We have a 40 acre we purchased. We're going to turn on. None of it's come to fruition, right? And 
you're going to gain 150 employees over the next three months. That's going to be great. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people didn't realize the 280E stuff and really how much capital it would take and and that learning that you, you're running factories and that's what you're doing and like get over whatever the the you know shiny object of cannabis and remember that you're running you know more or less a convenience store and you're you're selling widgets or whatever you want to call it and you need to you got convenience stores you got manufacturing facilities and you've got farms that's literally what what the business is yeah, yeah. and even and even like you know some of the, the cultivators i talked to they talk about it more like a factory there too you know but True. i definitely yeah. i would treat it a little more like an, an ag thing but um but yeah it's it, the people who've gotten closer to that reality quicker are, i think the ones who've won but also the ones who've gone in with a, an understanding of the scale that they were going to achieve from the beginning and not trying to overshoot it. And like, you know, if you want you can be vertical. If you want to have one store in a class B, right. Or two stores in a class B, like I, our, our, our friend drew at information entropy, I think is a great model of this, like really organic growth. He feeds his own store and understands like he's not going to buy a million dollar machine you know that needs to run all day every day for two years to pay for itself he's right. going to buy something smaller and if, if there isn't something good smaller he'll partner with someone who's good and like that that's that halfway model where like i think a lot of people got caught up on machines and didn't realize oh i got 30 stores well you still can't really justify a two million dollar line because right. it's going to take you so long to pay it off and you're only really selling man not like have you done that math you know you're you're right. gonna profit versus doing it by hand you're gonna profit an extra 30 cents per unit and you move twenty five thousand a month like you're gonna make an extra 8k a month and you're buying a two million dollar machine and so yeah. there was this like by the time you pay it off like it's depreciated down to zero anyway so <laughs> you might need to replace it and and so did you plan on having 200 stores and you, you miscalculated and that's a different thing? Or like, right. did you not really do that math? And so like, I think there are some really nice little vertical guys that are going to hang and have some pretty cool stuff going on, especially like a cultivator processor or a cultivator hmm. retailer. And, and there, you can't underestimate the part. And I think we're running to this on the, our road trip, our, our in-house brand is like, the quality control over the cannabis is really important for some brands. And I'm a big proponent of genetics kind of leading the way. And like genetics are going to be the big product. If you, you know, if you look at yes. CBG, like Dr. Pepper is a, is a strain, you know, yeah, it's a flavor and, yeah, 100%. and super boof, whatever you want to call it. And so the people who control those monetize them, market them properly are going to have really cool businesses and have really defensible products. Mm -hmm. And so we're in a place now where it's like, we can't, we'd have to have a massive grow to support our current operation. M massive. One of the, right. you know what I mean? So yeah. we have to partner with people in really interesting ways to kind of control their grow space and, you know, make sure it conforms to our quality, uses our genetics. And that's a little in the future, but that's still, you know, I, I think maybe down the road, there, you're going to see the exact same thing you see with McDonald's, right? If you grow potatoes for McDonald's, you're McDonald's, like their inspectors are there. They're, your your storage is to their spec. You spray with what, what they yep. say you spray. And that's where it's going to go. You're a Coca-Cola Coca bottling. Same exact thing. Like 
Right. There's no, there's no, there's no variance between the different facilities even though they're owned by different companies. Why? Because that SOP is dialed in just as much as if they were doing it in their own centralized facility. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you'll, you'll see a lot of it, less uh, verticality in the business ownership, but a lot of the exertion of, of control vertically from whoever is the, the biggest cog in the wheel, you know, the biggest piece of that supply chain, who's going to monetize it. Usually the, I'm guessing it's a lot of times going to be processors in the, in the far future. Yeah. Um, yeah retail probably now will dominate that, I would guess. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see when that transition of power happens. Um, it's going to make a lot of waves, I think, because we're so used to the retailers having all the power right now. And it completely dictates the way the business is run, I would, I would say, you know, in many respects. So, And I mean, you, I think you look at like a convenience store and you'd say the brands probably have a little more of the power there. But then you look at Walmart and I think you might ar argue the opposite and say Walmart really owns those. The, you don't really care about the brands that are in there. And so yeah. it's... But that's like a distro really and a retail put together, right? Like... Uh, they oh. kind of have they because they have that powerful like last mile uh, sort of fulfillment in addition, which I think I actually think the brands like that because what I've heard is if you work with Walmart, it like forces you to get your systems where they need to be, right? Like, um, and they'll they're willing to take on new brands and stuff even if you don't yet have your stuff where it needs to be. But like, if you want to stay there, you better get your things in, in ducks in a row. So it's an, it's an interesting model, but I hear you on that. But like, do we really think that there's going to be like the, the Walmart of cannabis uh, in a dispensary sense? Like there might be like the Amazon of cannabis, but I don't know about brick and mortar, you know? You don't need anything that big. Right. It seems, it seems like that, that behemoth would get, you know, escorted out of the industry pretty quickly <laughs> or attempted, right? They would be jumping through, yeah. you know, friendly fire, if you will, not just big regulation i would i would imagine based off the way it goes now right like yeah exactly even the, the biggest players in the industry take the most uh flack if yeah. you will yeah for sure and they're not even anywhere near the same realm of uh no. corporate giganticism uh why don't we jump into a little bit more about you guys and kind of the history of your company and and like what what did you guys where did you guys start and where are you at now you want to start, Nate, or me? You could do it. You're pretty good at it. <laughs> well, uh, so Nate and I are longtime friends, right? We went to the same high school. Uh, we weren't like friends necessarily in high school, played on the same basketball team. A couple, couple More of enemies. Yeah, a couple <laughs> years younger than him. Um, I got moved up to the varsity team when I was a sophomore and he was a senior. Uh, yeah. We had some family friend connections at that point in time. Um, but actually, when we got like reacquainted probably what three years after high school um cannabis went medical in michigan and i was in line to get my caregiver card mm -hmm. and someone behind me tapped me on the shoulder and it was someone who we also went to high school graduated with nate and he was like you should hit up nate russell he lives in humboldt county now if you want to learn how like he's been growing for a handful of years he'll tell you whatever he needs to know so i like you know got connected with nate he uh we started you know bouncing ideas back and forth um, talking about scrogs and things like that, um, you know, and then eventually started doing like little bits of business together. Um, I was making money in the caregiver realm. He was making money out there. And then 
I was um, actually studying for the MCAT to go to med school. And Nate called me and was like, why don't you come back out, come out to Humboldt? Let's, um, let's grow on some Prop 215 stuff out in the hills. And I was like, yeah, I'm sick of studying. I don't necessarily <laughs> want to dive back into medical school. So I um, hopped on a plane, honestly, and went out there. And um, we had a couple of successful summers together doing that. And then kind of transitioned into this like um, festival merch realm. So we were selling um, like lapel pins, apparel, uh, music festivals. Which festivals? Um, reggae yeah, on the River? Like, elect- we did Reggae on the River. We did Electric Forest, North Coast. Nice. Um, you guys you know, know I, I'm from Humboldt, right? Like I went to Arcade High School. Did you really? Yeah. 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 No, I didn't know that. That's yeah. wild. That is wild. Yeah. So yeah, you, don't like know, you don't know Trevor Bone, do you? Hmm. Doesn't sound familiar. Was he an Arcada? He's a Eureka kid. Eureka kid. Oh, Eureka, yeah. We just played them in football and got our ass kicked. We didn't really... I didn't, yeah, we I didn't rolled around. We would want to hang out with those Eureka kids, man. No, they went to they're, they're kind of, they went they're to kind of trash. State. He's a Okay, State yeah. Guy. So we, we, my football team played our homecoming games at HSU. So, yeah. Nice. That's cool. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah we, we, spent a lot, we spent a lot of time out there, honestly. It's um, a beautiful place. It really is. It really is. And I, I never appreciated it when I was a kid because... I grew up prior to, I went to, I, I moved up to Humboldt, like towards high school. And prior to that, I was down in Orange County, um, which is obviously like two ends of the spectrum. And so when I first went up there, I was like very much a beach kid and kind of subscribed to the SoCal lifestyle and uh, didn't really enjoy it or really took it for granted. And then I went back, you know, in college and after college. And every time I go back, I was just like, this place is, couldn't be more beautiful. Like, I can't believe I didn't see this at the time. You know, it's, it's an interesting uh, perspective difference, I suppose. Yeah. All right. So you guys awesome. were in you guys were in Humboldt. You you were doing some grow, then you started doing some merch sales it, at the uh, festivals. Yep. And uh, I mean, honestly, we did that for about four years. Turned it into a very nice business, um, and effectively parted ways. At some point in time, I was trying to make sure I didn't want to be a doctor still, so I moved to Boston um, to study the electrical portion of the heart. Mm. Uh, I worked in an EP lab for two years and then, um, you know, got sick of that, did some sales for a while. And Nate was knocking on my door saying, Hey, um, I've changed the model of the business a little bit. We're selling, you know, bulk pins and and custom merch to, you know, much larger clients. Now the NCAA, Mm. Kim Kardashian. Um, so why don't you come join and we'll, uh, we'll blow this thing up. And, I actually did ended up taking a leap of faith. I had a great job at the time and um, then COVID hit and effectively ruined that entire business. But at the same time, we were kind of like trying to transition into cannabis packaging, all the supply chain in China. Nate had an apartment there. It was all very similar. Mm. Um, And so I was kind of dipping my toes in the water and uh, we landed our first client was a huge Michigan operator at the time. They had like four or five stores and now they have 40. Um, Mm. And so we kind of, uh, cut our teeth on how to build out a project project management workflow and source and things like that. The sourcing we had already understood how to do, but it was kind of just a time to buckle up and get things done for people, right? They didn't have to out, they didn't have to hire Ben and Nate's internally. They could outsource, you know, and right. the margins were small enough on our end to where, you know, they felt good about it. We could still run our business. Um, and we kind of built that up over a handful of years, 18 months. And then, Decided we were too far away from our families. 
Nate was in LA at the time. I was in Boston. We moved home um, and started getting approached to turn on cannabis licenses, like plant touching licenses. We obviously have been in the space for forever. It was, it was like, everyone wanted us to try and help them turn something on. Most of them are, you know, rich old guys who had these pre-approvals and had no idea what to do with them. Um, And so finally, you know, we would casually have conversations about how we could do it, but the packaging business was doing so well that it was hard to move mindshare that way. Um, And finally we came up with this co-packing model, which made perfect sense, right? We could feed business. Leveraging the same systems you were already using in many ways. Exactly. And so you know, we kind of turned it on. We, we organically grew it, you know, didn't take on a ton of like outside money or anything like that. Um, and some of those same packaging clients were using us to roll pre-rolls for them, just simple knock boxes. Um, and we just increased our output, learned how to be lean at manufacturing, really tried to master every single thing we did at that point in time, it was a knock box. And now it's our automated pre-roll machine. And like a lot of the, you know, the core competencies that we have now have were built from, you know, a little 2,500 square foot warehouse that we then, you know, use the cash flow from to build out mm-hmm. our, you know, other 5,000 square feet and then vice versa back the other way. Mm-hmm. So it was this organic growth into the now this suite of offerings that we have, right? The the co-man mm-hmm. stuff, our own brand, and then obviously the packaging services, um, which we actually just merged our packaging company with a, a much larger entity in AE Global. Um, and so kind of the the cherry on top of all that work is now we're plugged into, um, you know, this awesome supply chain enterprise, if you will. And, and we still get to be Ben and Nate and, and Jess from a service standpoint and a sales standpoint, but now it's just backed by this, you know, behemoth. Um, yeah. so it's, uh, that's pretty much the road. I don't know if I miss anything, Nate, but. You glazed, you glazed over a lot of the heartbreak and pain. No, <laughs> we could dig Definitely. into that stuff for sure. What's the name of your company? Sure. You missed that <laughs> part. <laughs> I, was gonna say, I wasn't sure how much I could talk about, like getting raided by the cops and getting my plants cut down and hiding in the woods for five <laughs> hours and drinking cooler water to survive. I wasn't sure how much the people wanted to hear about that. The lawsuits, the, yeah. So getting, is your, getting, is, is your cannabis... Is your cannabis operation uh, wrapped under the custom pack co name or is it, it's, it's, or is it under the brand road trip or do you have a separate name for it? So the, the processing entity is called the lab. Um, Just the lab. Very unique. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Kept it simple. That's just like, and then our brand is called road trip. Um, That's our pre-roll brand. Um, who actually really love that brand that's that's a great brand i I like the way you guys kind of positioned that and you have some really unique products too it's like pre-rolls seems like such a it's it is what it is but you guys have worked on things like the quantity and sort of the uh packaging options for it and really found a way to define something that no one else is doing so that's pretty cool Thanks. Yeah. Shout out to uh, our friend Kevin McGraw. Did, a, did all the branding work there. And it's uh, ben, kind of Ben's baby, too, that he's uh, been crafting over time. So, yeah, it's super cool uh, to watch it grow. Even And, and kind of more so because it was a side project and it's kind of just growing on its own. And, like, there's not that pressure on it. Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Things, but um, And then, yeah, the, the packaging company was Custom Patco. Now we are 
uh, the Midwest division of AE Global or A Global Midwest. Um, so, yeah, a few different names. We've always had a few different names, you know. You guys are the, you guys are the Chads now. Corporate. Oh, dude. I mean, ben and Nate. I'm, I've always, I'm, I've always been a super pro. I, I just had this conversation. I'm like, I, I'm like probably the most pro corporate cannabis guy out there. I just, yeah. like, that's, I, I, I'm like, think 20 years from now, do you want, do you want dispensaries? Do you want cannabis to just be sold at liquor stores? Like, you know, what's access look like to you? Like, true legalization is like, it's just everywhere, right? Like, buy it at Meyer. If, if they wanted to sell it, like you could just add that license onto any existing, right? But yeah, that's like no so antithetical to people's like, you gotta, like, you wanna just be, everyone should buy it out of someone's garage is like how some people view it almost. You and know? it's ironic like, because the access would actually be drastically increased by making it so people could buy it from a grocery store. Like not everyone's gonna know someone or be exactly. comfortable with that idea anyway. So it's, yeah, there's that. It's a, it, exactly. there's a lot of like, like virtue signaling, I feel like sometimes, and people kind of like have a contradiction between what they say and what they're actually doing in this industry. And what I've seen a big pattern in with companies like yours and the ones that I'm actually uh, interviewing on these podcasts, right. Who are the successful companies that are growing and, and surviving and even thriving while other companies are struggling is a combination of like you recognizing the realities of where this industry is going. And instead of trying to like fight that uh, from a philosophical standpoint, you're like, all right, well, let's position our company to be able to work in that environment while still making quality products, right? And still at the heart of it, still doing what is important to everybody in cannabis, but like not trying to swim upstream. And then simultaneously, like you guys, are really, really focused on doing the things that you do well and actually welcoming the business acumen in because there's so much tribalism between the legacy and the Wall Street, right? And the legacy guys say the Wall Street guys are soulless vampires and then the Wall Street guys think the legacy guys have nothing to offer and are a bunch of chumps, right? And it's like they both have something to offer because you need both to make a good company. How about be a legacy guy who grows? like grows yeah. in their their own knowledge and their own understanding and become like Ben and I did not go to school for for what whatever manufacturing management or whatever insane degree we would need to run the operation we run right now like that's what I get caught up on like you just want to pause in time and, and ride on your like rest on the fact that in 1999 you won a high times cup or like we've gotten by I, I, I'll say we get a lot of respect whatever we get passes people work with us because we did those things right and so maybe i have a little more freedom to kind of speak on those the importance of the corporate side and not get so much flat because i can be like well i've done i've done that shit and so you know like we wouldn't be here without that legacy side but that's what i hear when i hear that is like you guys don't want to continue expanding your knowledge base and you you're you wish that the market would just uh benefit those who have you know can crush a nine lighter <laughs> you know what i'm yeah. saying it's like well and like would you really if you had the opportunity like the mso label right like are you telling me that if you had the opportunity because your brand was doing so well to expand 
and grow your market share and build your business that you'd be like, no, I'm not going to like, I think the people that, you know, I'm not a fan of mudslinging, like the whole point of this podcast to help people that are struggling, learn the right ways. But I think that it's so easy and tempting to get into that echo chamber of negativity where instead of saying, how can I succeed? Folks look at the folks that are succeeding and say, let me cherry pick the reasons that they're doing something that I don't agree with and like focus on that. Like just, you want to grow business is about growing. It's called corporation because that's, as you grow, you need that structure, right? It's, you're not going to be able to just have some artisan thing going on. Uh, I mean, your products can be artisan, but you still need to have structure in your company and understand how you use spreadsheets and ERPs and all that stuff. If you want to have a reliable, consistent business, which I know you guys are big on that stuff. I mean, we speak the same language on a lot of those things. And I really like that. Like you're, you talk about lean manufacturing, you talk about really understanding your costs, which we were talking about a little bit earlier. Um, you, you have like an interesting uh, metric that you use, which I believe is profit after tax. That's what you like to look at as opposed to like EBITDA or sort of that uh, gross profit number. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Nate? Yeah, I mean, it's really... Um you know, we've, we've run a couple other businesses that are not 280 subject. Right. And I've, I've done the majority of our books for years and years and like more or less we've all, we've always been bootstrapped. And so as a entrepreneur running that way, you, you run the company at almost a zero profit. You don't know any tax and you get to grow for a few years. You don't pay yourself much, but you don't have that burden of federal taxes on you. And that's how it's supposed to work is you get these few years, you get up, you just don't have to, you know, if you make a little money, you owe a little tax, right? And if you lose money, especially in those first few years, which you always lose money, you don't owe any tax. And um, in 280E world, you know, you can lose four or 500K real money and then end up with a tax bill on your head for a few hundred thousand on top because your yeah. tax growth. So we we didn't have a great understanding of this when we went in. We knew it was pretty bad, but I was still running with that old mentality is if, if, this, if the company's running at a break even, our tax situation is gonna be fine. And it's to a point, it's true, but once you get to a certain level of scale, your gross profits are massive. Mm-hmm. Even if you're spending a bunch of all your extra, you know, net to, to build the business and grow it, which is normally non-deductible. And so, or or a good portion of it will be. And so we just started saying a lot of it is, you know, us being, you know, the primary owners and primary investors in the the business and wanting to see a return and wanting to at least pay ourselves, right? The real metric that that matters is what's your take home after the 280E comes out? And so we, you know, we used to, you know, and a lot of people, I think the other piece is too, and we fell into this was like, we were planning on getting acquired. And there's a lot of people, especially in cannabis who like that, they're like three or four years, someone will just buy us out, man, it'll be gravy. And like, we just like, generally, you know, okay, you'll get, they want to see a seven X on EBITDA. Right. And so that's really, really difficult in itself to get like a substantial EBITDA, but right. Now everyone is seeing, okay, all the big failures and in, in, you know, the stock speculation that occurred in the big MSOs, right? So now the, the smart money has really taken a hard look at anything cannabis. And I think they're coming from a standpoint too, that if you're not profitable after tax right now, 
even if when things go federally legal, if that's your stance, right? Well, we're going to get screwed with 280 now, but when it goes federally legal, we'll be in a great spot. Right. Do your books really show that? Are you fine if you took away that 280E portion? And to me, a really healthy company actually shows a positive PAT right now, maybe like over 10%, you're doing great, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. And and, yeah, and then, then you're probably doing 30%, 25% when it go, you know, when two eight, you get relief from 280E. So right. it's part of it is just like most people are in our position. Like most people aren't. And if they, if, if they're not, they are a bigger MSO. They have people on their staff who have deep understandings of this and they've built out this corporate structure that protects them and whatever. Most people are just like us and they have a, an S corp and they're running, you know, this thing that they, they're just in it because they love the plant and they don't have this, this understanding that we're just developing really deeply now to yeah. apply these models to every product, right? And that's what I think you got to do is every product you sell, every service you perform, does it actually, you, you pretty much need to double up is, is really what it looks like. You need to double up at gross, right? If, it, if your base costs are a buck, you need to sell it for two because your net, your net costs and the tax on that gross is probably going to take you down to 40, 40% of that down to about 10, right? If you're set up properly. Yeah, and as so long that, as your SGNA is controlled, when a lot of people have bloated corporate structures, they're overpaying various people. They've got people with titles that are inflated and they're overpaying them. And like they're paying tax on that payroll tax in addition to all the payroll, right? Like they're paying tax on the tax of that. And it's funny because I saw, I keep seeing this metric out there that's like the average effective tax rate in cannabis is 70 to 80%. But that can't be right because- there's also the metric that only 25% of cannabis companies turn a profit, which to me means that if you have any tax at all and you don't turn a profit, then you're actually over a hundred percent effective tax rate, right? Like if you're losing money well, and you still owe money because you're of your gross, then you know the effective tax rate is your tax over your profit, right? I, yeah, I, I mean, I think part of it is, and I, some of the stuff I'm still novice on, but I think a lot of a lot of it is you're it's an S these are S corps. And so the entity isn't taxed, right? It's passed on to the individual. So if you look at the effective tax rate on an individual, a, 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 hmm, an maybe, owner, okay. an owner so they're looking salary, at like, income tax, not us, corporate tax. Yeah. What's what's so crazy, right? So like if we took if we're paid hundred K in salary, right? Yeah. Um, we're taxed like a normal human, right? 35, 40% comes off. So we're down to 60. At the same time, we get a tax bill mm -hmm. because that 100K was treated as profit right. by the federal government for another 35K, yeah. 40K. So we end up down, just like you're saying, 70, 30%. And that's it. That's just, <laughs> just our salary. And then the, the crazy piece of an S-Corp is if you're to, to take... Uh, distributions uh, or dividends, whichever one it is, I was getting confused, but to pull it's money out just as an owner, distributions, and get that capital gains rate, you're limited in the amount that you can pull out. It has to basically equal your salary if you're an, an officer who's working in the in the company. So mm -hmm. as a cannabis operator, if, I, if say we're crushing it, right, we want to pull out a million dollars capital gains, we have to pay ourselves a million in salary. Yeah, yeah. And so and then pay all the tax of, on half that. of our money, we have to yeah. pay seven. Yeah. So it's just like, even if you're crushing it, you just, you, you get hit worse almost. 
And so it's, yeah. it's, it's such a brutal environment, which sometimes I'm thankful for because we, you know, we, we think we we're pretty confident people and we think we do things the right way. And generally, if you, you know, we think we'll get through it and we'll be one of the few that do because it's so brutal. And so it's, it's, it's maybe a good thing in the long run, but it's like, I mean, it, it's some stressful days in the short run when you start, uh, especially when the first time you take this 280 pill and like anyone who's listening yeah, is in like yeah. Minnesota or anywhere who's just going legal. If you haven't taken this pill yet, man, it, yeah. it's painful going down. And, and the quicker you react to it and build your models to double up on everything and make sure you're taking home profit because you got to pay your taxes with that profit. You, know? you need to understand finance. You have to be financially literate in cannabis. You, it's, you cannot rely on your tax person to make these decisions. You have to understand what 280E means. And the only way you can understand that is if you understand an income statement. And really, you got to understand a cash flow model as well. Because, like you said yourself, like the cash is, I mean, cash is what keeps you in business, right? Like the paper only tells you so much, but the paper tells you how you're going to generate the cash. So, and your, your reminder too. Just so you guys know, we just your CPA. Even if you hire a third-party CFO who is there, they don't change prices in your company, right? They don't fire people. They don't change your financial model. They just present stuff to you. It's up to you to take the take what they say. And many times, try to apply. They aren't necessarily even going to apply it to your business in the best way because you understand it the most. So, like, you really got to take that information and then put it into action quickly. Because every month that goes by is another tax bill for you if you're not running a proper model, you know? Which just goes back to the same thing we've been talking about, which is like, this is the reason why cannabis professionals need to become business professionals. They cannot just be like, I'm really good at growing weed. It's, it, you will go out of business. You know, the first time, like you said, that before you take the pill, you're looking at all these different options, like, oh man, penciling things out based on just your net profit prior to any, you know, tax burden. And you're like, man, I can make money a hundred different ways. We're gonna make so much money. We're gonna make $18 million this year. Some ridiculous number, right? Like we just started our business. We're gonna make $18 million this year. And then and for some reason, yeah, for some reason, it never, like, I'm, how are we paycheck to paycheck? Barely able to pay payroll. So yeah, yeah no, that's, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a mess, but I think it's good because it forces people to get responsible. And when you're responsible and then things go federally legal, there's gonna be so many new requirements that are at such a higher level of complexity and stringency i don't know if that's a word but you know what i'm saying like, I like it. they uh these folks that are kind of floating uh, barely even able to keep up with the state level stuff they're gonna have a really hard time when fda comes down and starts telling them what to do right Definitely. so um, yeah yeah talk to me about i want to go back to your fight uh with you know with the regulations like have you guys been having to do this on your own? Has there been sort of a collaborative effort with other operators? Um, what's your experience been? Locally, we have a really nice uh, band of misfits here in Kalkaska who all, for whatever reason, ended up here. But um, we we have a, we have Kalkaska. That's been the thing. It, it, in the state level too, I think people need to remember like. You, we have all the power. It's a $4 billion industry that's funding everything. Like really the only bright spot in Michigan's budget yeah. for, a, for a number of years. And locally, I mean, 
Hell, Casca, you can read about, I mean, like, was literally millions of dollars in debt, lawsuits. It's just fixed, right? Mm -hmm. And and really like that, just a year or two. And so a complete turnaround of of a just wasted town. And that was a big piece that I just had to convince. We show up with 20 people and rep- representing 300 jobs and just say, we're not going to take this. Sh- like, we're just we're not your golden goose, bro. You're not going to kill us. Like, like yeah. don't, and, and don't even mess with us either. Yeah. Like, yeah. don't, and like, just As a matter of fact, I, I think I'm going to assess some, some asshole tax on you just for the hell of it. You're going to pay it. <laughs> exactly. I, I kept saying, kick the dog and not, yeah. I'm a vegetarian. I love my dog. I'm honestly wanting her to fly. But, it, you know, there's a mean dog. It's, you don't, it, sometimes you just gotta be like, kick the dog and he'll leave you alone, right? Like, yeah. like the dog's not, doesn't have anything over you. It's just a dog, man. Like, it's just yeah. like Alcaster Village Council. They're not doing anything. <laughs> and, and, they, and they honestly don't even exist without us and just remind them that in a semi pleasant way. And I think there's a little bit of that at the state level that people are missing and they're just like hmm. afraid of the CRA. And part of it is that they're not compliant. And if you're not compliant, you can't take a stand and you can't be noisy and you can't throw elbows at the CRA because Great point. They, they do have power over you. And so that's a big piece for us. Now, I'll be I'll be as outspoken as I want because I have no fear about them walking through our facility or maybe it's just the tiniest bit of fear, I guess. And that's so- an interesting point you make, though. Like, I haven't heard that before. And it's so true. If you like compliance is actually a source of power. I want people that are listening to this to really take that in for a second, because so many people are playing outside of the rules because they think they need to. But what you just said is, is critical. Like it, you cannot have an outspoken voice and fight for yourself. If you're thinking about, well, what happens when they look under the hood and they see all this stuff and they have access to everything because we're in metric, right? And like, all it takes is someone that knows what they're looking for often, because a lot of this stuff is quite blatant, you know? Um, so that's a really good point. I, I think there's a lot of reasons to do things right, but I think that's one that isn't spoken about very often. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's definitely like, I don't, I just don't know. I, I can see it out there in unspoken ways of, you know, people are, are thankful we will step up and say stuff. And I'm like, and I know why you don't, you know, it's just, it's very clear. And, um, but, but yeah, it's, it's like, I uh, I think that same, not attitude, but like, you know, big industries lobby, and, and it's a little bit of a dirty word, right? But in, in the end, like any government, it's you, jobs are come from industry and jobs bring housing and housing raises taxes and, and, and more buildings is more taxes. And that kind of development is what everyone wants everywhere. And like, we're the key to that, you know, in so many places. And like, as much as you, that's another benefit of learning the corporate side and acting that way is that part of the game is like talking to the regulators and the really big businesses do it so well. Like, do you want, do you want, you know, what, whatever you're against, you know, what, you know, vapes or, or something you think is bad. Do you want them to be really effective at it and the cannabis industry not to be? And, and, and like, so it's just another, it's another piece, just like learning lean manufacturing, right? That I didn't necessarily plan on being a part of the, the village of Calcasco's Cannabis Coalition Council, you know, 
but I, or, or meeting with, and, and, but you just have to do those things if you want to expand. And then like, you, if you want the industry to be better, do, you got to do something. You yeah. got to do something about it. You know, I think like lobbying, like you said, has a bad, uh, you know, bad rap, but I think part of that is because a lot of, I think it's really about the companies that are using lobbying to do things that aren't in the best interest of the public. And I think that maybe a better word is like business activism, right? Like ultimately whoever's voice is the loudest is the one that's going to get heard. If you don't say anything, like you said, nothing's going to change. So if you're doing something that's for the betterment of the industry, and like you pointed out yourself for the people, because you guys are the ones that are providing the majority of the jobs. And Michigan is a great example, especially in the rural areas that have cannabis. Typically the cannabis companies are some of the biggest uh, providers of jobs in the entire area. I mean, our, when I was at left coast in Manistee, I'm pretty sure we were the biggest, uh, employer in the entire like County or something like there might've been like some giant factory otherwise, but like we were definitely up there. Right. And that had a lot of weight. Um, just like you said. So I think, I think people have more power than they realize, but they need to use it and they need to make sure that they're not doing other stuff so that they have the confidence to use it. But yeah, you, can't, you can't bitch about it if you don't, you know, can't, can't complain about the president if you don't vote, can't complain about the regulations if you're not out there speaking about them. Yeah, I think that's a good point. What you're like, um, as far as like the conversation of people working together in this way, and I think Nate um, created this doc effectively. It was really just, I think, primarily to organize thoughts prior to the CRA coming in. But um I think in posting it, it served as a nice little like conduit to spark other people to understand. And it's, you know, this is our, our opinion on why these rules impact us. But I think it also kind of serves as a framework for other people to get their minds thinking about, mm. hey, this can affect you. I know you're focused on the day-to-day -day operations of what you do. And obviously that's what pays your bills and things like that. But at the same time, if this behemoth comes through and wipes out your business, you have no day-to-day. -day. Yeah. And so I think some people are just scared to, to dip their toes in the water because they don't necessarily know how. Mm -hmm. um, but I think most people agree with a lot of what we're, what we're saying. And I think, you know, the, the powers that be the regulatory bodies win when people are quiet, at least ours seems to be listening to, to what the loud people in the room, like you're saying, want um, and are, you know, holding events and things like that to, to get voices heard. Um, but I think more people need to do it or else it's, you know, a select few people are going to be making the decisions, call them yeah. lobbyists, call them activists, whatever you want. To, but you're right. The, the handful of people are, are going to be making decisions for the minority. Uh, Which is already what happens in a lot of places. I exactly. mean, luckily for Michigan, it's you guys um, and not, you know, it's not like out here in Illinois, we don't need to go in that much, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but let's be honest too. Like, Yes, you guys are outspoken. You guys are, you guys understand what you're talking about. You guys have gone through the, the process of thinking and defining like what these issues are, how they impact you negatively, and what a better approach is. Uh, other folks that maybe don't feel as confident to go to that level, at the very least, they can come to you and say, "Hey, I agree with you. How do I help? How do I lend my voice in a way that I can?" And you know, part of that I think is losing the ego and acknowledging that like, we don't know everything. Like you guys know a lot and I want to support that, but like, I'm not going to be the main star of the show, but like, this is in my best interest. And I think maybe sometimes some operators just feel that sense of pride of like, well, 
I don't want to make it about them. I don't want them to be at the forefront, you know? And it's like, that's just so self-defeatist. Like you've got to get over that and realize that this is a community together and you guys are all trying to do the same thing, but it's, what would be the worst thing would not be you guys making the rules. The worst thing would be if your voice is not loud enough and the rules don't change and then everyone loses, right? So it's, yeah, I mean, it's in everyone's interest. That's the hardest part about being an entrepreneur. Oftentimes in my in my opinion, is like the the fuel that drives you oftentimes is the thing that kills you too, right? You're like so motivated to do this and do it well, and I'm going to do it myself, and I'm the one that can figure this out. And then you reach this point where you really can't do it yourself at scale, and you need to either, you know, hire someone else and teach them how to do what you used to do in a better way to remove the mind share, or partner with somebody else to do something that, you know, you can no longer do, or have a conversation with someone who's willing to be a bigger advocate than you are for your own good, it's the the cannabis industry is is riddled with uh, like you know lifelong entrepreneurs and i think oftentimes people are too prideful to have that conversation it's i, I can empathize with that it's really difficult to do it's it's a hundred percent um something that i think all of us as entrepreneurs struggle with daily but that's why you're an entrepreneur stuff. right you got it it can't be an entrepreneur if you don't have an ego like otherwise you just right. gonna exactly. go follow somebody else so it certainly makes it easier <laughs> Um, we got a little bit of time left, so I want to roll into the standard four questions I like to ask everybody. Um, I actually got this idea from the Bigger Pockets podcast. I don't know if you guys have ever heard it, but uh, they ask like a series of questions to everyone at the end, and I, I just think it's nice to see if there's like similarities between uh, people that have kind of like a similar mindset in just some of the ways that they have gained that knowledge and also just who they are as people. So uh, first question is, what is your favorite business book? I like mine's got, this is kind of a roundabout answer. Honestly, it's, I like the 5am club personally. I think the reason I like that book is not necessarily for what happens. It's not a business book necessarily sort of. Um, but I think when you're an entrepreneur and you're running at almost all hours of, of light is sometimes into the dark, it's a marathon, right? And so the only way to go the entire time is to be able to create something for yourself. And oftentimes for me, it's the morning. So mm -hmm. honing in my morning routine has been crucial for standing up to, you know, multi-million dollar businesses and running them side by side and, you know, half in here, half out there. Um, so that's my answer for that, the 5am. And what is, what is your morning routine, if you don't mind sharing? So I, t I typically wake up, drink my um, athletic greens, not plugging the product, but I do, I do enjoy it. Um, I add a little beetroot powder in there sometimes. Um, and I do 10 to 15 minutes of stretching typically, um, yeah. do a little core and depending on the day, a little workout. I'm not like a big, like weightlifting guy or anything, but just enough to like get a base sweat. I do take yeah. a cold shower. I'm a part of the, uh, mm. the cold water in the morning. Cult cold following. water cult. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then I try and not look at my phone before 6 30 doesn't always happen that way but um and then my one-year-old kid wakes up by seven so i get about two hours of and there's about 45 minutes in there where i can you know do whatever i want uh, sometimes yeah. just sit on my ass and do nothing and sometimes you know read yeah get that mind recharged for the day though 100 yeah, percent. exactly what about you nate I think the lean startup is probably it's hard to say it's I think it's just the most important book um 
if you run a sales team, sales management simplified is, is mm. the close second, I would say. It's kind of more niche, but like, man, lean startup, if you're, if you're just trying to figure it out, it's just, that's, that's what it, it's all about, you know? It's, yeah. it's just pivot ready and, and, and uh, beyond pivot ready. Like pivoting is business. Like you don't pivot, you die. And just getting that into your system is, is uh, the game, you know? That's something that like, I would say has been a inherent weakness for me uh, and something I've struggled with as an entrepreneur is like, I have a tendency to want to over scaffold stuff early on, you know, because that's kind of how my brain works. Like I'm big on systems and systems thinking. And it's just like you said, though, like if you kind of build out that structure prematurely, then it prevents you from being able to adapt as quickly when you're trying to find where that path is. And it takes quite a bit of that in the beginning, especially in an emerging market like cannabis, I think. Um, I mean, you guys have shown that yourselves. I mean, you guys have gone through several iterations as you've gotten to sort of where you're like, okay, I'm really, I'm really found, found my feet. And even now, you know, who knows where you'll be in a year or two. So. Yeah. I mean, Ben, we have a good dynamic. I'm definitely like a move fast, break stuff. Um, kind of guy and like I have a, a, a tendency to chase shiny things and I like change and like I, I get bored um mm. and so you gotta like you can the thing is you can stay in your lane and still pivot and so you, you we've done a great job of that we've we've run so many business together but we've been a sales sourcing and design and service and like we do that it's really the exact same business doesn't the, not yeah. only do this manufacturing thing which is just madness but you know like stay in your core competency keep your team around you know and like the pivots don't seem as really as big as they look from the outside um hmm. but yeah there's a, there's a serious balance there and i think ben is on the other side maybe not more scaffolding but he because he's the client facing he has to eat the shit more if what we built isn't that good. He has yeah, to present yeah. it to people. So if it's ugly, he's the one who has to deal with it. I'm like, get, get out. Like, we got to get it out there, man. Get it out there. We can sell it. We'll fix it later. Right. So I think there's a piece of that. But I think also just our, our brains function on those, on two different, <laughs> I'm a little faster and uh, a little more, uh, yeah, just see what happens, you know? We'll, we'll I think those make that. the best partnerships though. Like you kind of have to have both those personalities. And I, the, uh, I suppose the visual that I think of is like some guy that's walking in front of the other guy, the guy in the back has like a backpack that's just overflowing with stuff while the guy in the front is just picking things up and throwing it behind him without looking right. Like, Ooh, that looks cool. Keep that. Keep yeah. that. The guy's like, Oh shit. You know? <laughs> uh, and I've always been the guy in the back doing that. So that's why, I, that's why I, uh, sort of uh, acknowledge that reality but i think you need both I, I do because if you don't have the person that thinks quickly especially with the, how quickly this industry moves you're going to be left behind but if you don't have you know simultaneously if you don't have that organization and uh, some semblance of structure then you end up like a lot of companies i think more companies have the person that's all over the place and don't have the person that's sort of bringing things together and that's why they're just flailing about and, you know, unreliable and just never really seem to go anywhere. So that's awesome. Um, what's your guys' favorite cannabis cultivar? So mm. often a hard question for folks, but. <laughs> I'll probably go Lemon Larry. 
Um, just from our humble days, honestly, 2013, that was like, this is all you need to grow. This is the cookie strain. This is the OG yeah. strain. These will all sell for north of 2,500. Grow them well. Yeah. We'll, we'll all be rich. And it, you know, it frankly worked. And so honestly, even growing it back here in Michigan, it was, you know, resilient. It smells great. It's that like, you know, OG, it's the OG smell that right, everybody, right, right. I feel like it's gone now too. Yeah, um, everyone's into the desserts. Exactly. So that's, that's where I'm going. Lemon Larry OG. Nice. I got a curveball. I'm going to say Blue Dream. I'm a big, I'm a big Blue Dream guy. I grew a lot of Blue Dream out of Humboldt. It is one of the, just the best grower. plants to grow. It grows yeah. so easily. It's so tough. It doesn't grow great in Michigan, up north here at least. doesn't do well. In Humboldt it does but though. Great. Oh, oh my, dude. It's like, it's like raspberries out there. I mean, it just <laughs> grows so thick and sturdy and it's great weed and people, People grew so much of it, they gave it a bad name, but like, it is such good. It's like one of the, yeah, I think it's, it's like one of the, the, the best cultivars of commercial versus flavor versus, you know, being something unique. It, it's one of the top ones, like it, you know, four pound outdoor plants. Those were like the first two pound lights people were getting back in the day with the, the blue scheme. You know, I like definitely had my best backyard plant ever was with a little blue dream plant. Um, so I'll stick with that one. Isn't it funny how like it was ruined because it was overproduced? Like what other, it just speaks to the like ADD tendencies of the cannabis consumer. Well, like what other, you know, food or, or CPG product is like, oh, well you, it's been around too long. I've had too much access to like, typically if you like something, you like it. And that's kind of staple. I can't do Marlboro Reds anymore. I'm switching to. Yeah. It's like, clothes. that's why cannabis really is like music. Like it truly is because the the way that it's produced is much more like a top 40 song that you've heard 15 times a day. And you're like, I never want to hear that again. Even though the first time I might've really liked it and thought it slapped. Now I can't stand it. Right. And yeah. and a, there's a lot of similarities. Damn, interestingly. So thing. I like yeah. it a lot. And it'll come back around at some point and you'll listen and to it. And all the growers it. are just diva. Yeah, like, Dream. just like the artists. Too, yeah. back, baby. Yeah, there you go. There you go. We're get, it's it's on the oldies station now. <laughs> now we're back. Now we're back to our fans. Blue Dreams back. I'd love yep. a good cut of movie. Hey, I I mean I I think the the nostalgics you know cultivars. Once we can get over this obsession with THC percentage, and we can bring back some of that stuff from back in the day. I've said this several times on these podcasts, but like, you know, I I had the best smoking experiences ever in high school. I really did. And we didn't know or care what the THC percentage was. We cared what the product smelled like and we would smoke it and, you know, we'd be laughing and just everything was tasted good and had a great experience. Right. And it wasn't about like just getting completely blitzed off of a one hitter and uh, just having that thin, like only THC high. And I, people don't even experience that anymore if they're newer to cannabis consumption because you can't even get stuff like that. And that's why like everyone that's returning to cannabis typically, at least, you know, my, my dad only wants to smoke sour diesel. Like he doesn't want to smoke any of this other stuff, you know, because <laughs> he knows what he used to like. And so I'd love to see a return to that um, because there's so many great, flavors out there that, that we're missing i think 
the Humboldt high schoolers <laughs> had to have the fire back then, though. I mean, you guys were smoking. Oh, yeah. Those arcade kids. Yeah, the arcade, the arcade high school kids. Oh were my smoking. god! Yeah. You should, you so should see my AP statistics notes because that was right after lunchtime. Some of that stuff, it looked like I was on another planet. It's pretty funny. <laughs> All right, uh, next question: What interests and hobbies do you guys have outside of cannabis? I golf a lot as much as I can. I mean, I do have a one-year-old child, so it's been a little light lately, but um, I also have an awesome family. So I spend a decent amount of time with them. They're friends as much as family. So that's awesome. um, that um, I used to play a lot of basketball, but it's been, it's been substituted for golf a little easier on the body. So yeah, I was going to say, it's not a, it's not an elder men's sport necessarily. <laughs> no. no. So just swinging the sticks lately. Nice. I'm, uh, I'm actually learning to golf this year. So I've been watching Ben play golf and be, he's actually, he's a great golfer. So he's sandbagging a bit right now. He's just a hell of a golfer, but, um, I am learning this year is that really it's uh, I'm just, I'm learning how to control my emotions. It's my number one goal in business. Just it's a, a great I, training tool for that. I keep saying that, like it that is, and tennis. It's kind of brutal. It's kind of like it's you have a bad day and you want to go do something that just relieves all your stress. Yeah. And like golf is like okay, that same type of stress you just wanted to that you just did and you failed at. Now you have to put yourself through more. So I'm trying to figure. Well, that's that what out. the driving range is for, right? Not a not a game though. The game is straight training your mind, and it's oh. funny because it's just like business where you could be crushing it. And just keep doing the same thing. And then one day it's just not working at all. And you're like some giant fire from that, right? Golf is the same thing. Like you can just be, I feel like the more I play, the worse I get. You know, it's like yeah. the opposite of most yeah. uh, skills that you gain. So that's that's so funny that you say that because I totally think it's like a mental, mental training tool. And tennis for me yeah. is the same way because my wife is super good at tennis um, and I'm terrible at it. I'm really fast and athletic in a, general sense but i'm absolutely terrible at tennis so i make up for like not being able to hit it where i want to by just running all over the court and i get like exhausted and i'm really competitive so i get really pissed off too and i hit it inevitably terribly every time so yeah that's it's for me it's been like trying to get rid of that perfectionism uh mentality yeah it's not linear that's the tough part too is like you're a business person, you want like week over week results. And like, really, that's how it is. And you, especially a startup, you should expect to see week over week results. Like you can expect that out of your team. That's not unreasonable. But golf is like 92, 113, 99, 106. Just like, and if you're hitting a 92 in your first year, then that's pretty damn good. So it was on a short course. Uh, nine, nine. <laughs> uh, uh, all right last question where can we connect with you guys linkedin instagram website so on and so linkedin is probably the best i'm i got the official notice that i'm shadow banned on instagram and they like sent me a notice it said clean up your act we're not showing your stuff to anyone um but nature yeah of passage <laughs> so yeah nate says do less on instagram we're both on uh, LinkedIn, you can look at uh, a global um, or the lab to find us on LinkedIn. <laughs> You'll be one of the five thousand uh, results for the lab. Yeah, well, we're the lab processing and co-packing. 
so okay. if you want to get very specific, but <laughs> so uh, that's probably the best way. Okay. I'll include all those links in the show notes as well. And in fact, if you guys want uh, to share the document that you sent to the CRA, I actually think that'd be a great resource for people to look at, especially as we're talking about kind of that higher level thinking. Um, if you guys are comfortable with it, I'd love to sure. uh, link to that in the, in the show notes as well. Absolutely. Yeah, no problem. Beautiful. Uh, ben and Nate, pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an awesome time chatting and uh, best of luck with everything. Definitely going to be keeping tabs on you guys. You too, brother. We appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for having us. Appreciate yeah. you. And that wraps up today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. For additional information on the episode and links to Ben and Nate's website and social media, please check out the show notes at podcast.diamondminers.co forward slash episode dash eight. While you're there, be sure to sign up for the DMC newsletter so you can have industry insights from yours truly delivered directly to your email inbox. As always, thanks for listening and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Diamond Miners podcast with Benjamin Ballinger. If you found this podcast valuable, please take a minute to give the show a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe for more episodes just like this one. You can also follow DMC on Twitter and LinkedIn at DiamondMinersCO or connect directly with me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com forward slash in forward slash BR Ballinger.